Well, we are going to be looking at 1 Chronicles chapters 24 and 25. Now, for the last, uh, I don't know, 20 weeks or so, we've been averaging about one chapter a day. Today we're going to do two chapters. Uh, so we will be here till about 1.30, uh, making our way through. I'm just teasing Leslie, don't worry. Um, 1.15. Uh, so we'll get out of here. But we're going to look at two chapters today. Uh, we have been... The, First Chronicles um, is a book that almost half of the chapters of the book are genealogies. I know that that's not the most exciting text uh, for us to be reading and things like that, but yet what I have found during my time of studying, hopefully you've been experiencing it as well, is that God has been faithful. Even in the midst of you know, stuff you might just gloss over and not really pay attention to, he's just been really faithful to speak uh, into our lives through these passages, which I think is great. Uh, and today we're going to be uh, looking at it again. Remember, the, the purpose of the book of 1 Chronicles is to remind the people, or to teach the people, really, the Israelite people, who had been taken out of the land of Israel, hadn't lived there for about 100 years, and are now returning to Israel. And when they return, uh, how does everything work here? You know, who, who are the priests, and how do you come up with them, and who's the leaders, and how do you come with them, and where do we live, and why do we live here, and so on. Well, David, or Ezra, I should say, the author explains all those things. So here we are now in chapter 24. David is uh, about to die. He'd been the king for close to 40 years, 33 years, as the leader of the nation, the entire nation of Israel. Uh, and he's about to die, and he's already determined that his son Solomon is going to be the next king. Uh, and what he said to Solomon is, Solomon, it doesn't really matter what you accomplish if God's not in it. And so first and foremost, Solomon, this is what I want from you. You need to make sure the temple gets built and you need to make sure that God is front and center in our nation. And so he, he does everything he can that Solomon would be successful in that endeavor, uh, gathering the, the wood, gathering the gold, and all the materials that are going to be needed. But he also organizes the people, the priests, the worship leaders, the Levites, the gatekeepers, and all these people. And we looked at those individuals in the last few chapters. Today in chapter 24, we're going to be looking at how he organizes the priests to accomplish their purposes. And verse 1 begins this way. It says, Now the divisions of the sons of Aaron were these. The sons of Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died before their father, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar became the priests. Now with the help of Zadok, of the sons of Eleazar, and Ahimelech, of the sons of Ithamar, David organized them according to their appointed duties in their service. Since more chief men were found among the sons of Eleazar than among the sons of Ithamar, they organized them under 16 heads of fathers' houses of the sons of Eleazar, and only eight of the sons of Ithamar. They divided them by lot, all alike, for there were sacred officers and officers of God among both the sons of Eleazar as well as the sons of Ithamar. And the scribe Shemaiah, the son of Nethanel, a Levite, recorded them in the presence of the king and the princes, and Zadok the priest, and Ahimelech the son of Abiathar, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the priest, as well as the Levites, one father's house being chosen for Leazar, and one for Ithamar. So verse 1 begins with the words of the divisions of the sons of Aaron were these. Now, again, remember the context of things is David is organizing the people that are going to administer, uh, or minister, I should say, in the temple. Now, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 24, he'll address the sons of Aaron. 
Remember, Aaron is a Kohathite. And I made this statement. Let's see if you can remember this and finish this off if you were with us. All priests are Kohathites, but not all Kohathites are priests. Okay, You had to be from the family of Kohath. So there, Aaron, uh, there were three lines, if you will, of the Levites. There were the Gershonites, there were the Kohathites, and there were the Merorites. Um, they're they're going to make up the Levites, if you will, but it's the Kohath, Kohathites that the priests are going to come from. And specifically, those Kohathites that were from a guy by the name of Aaron. Now, if you look back to chapter 23, verse 12, you see that there, 23, 12? It says, now the sons of Kohath were Amron, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzziel. The sons of Amron were Aaron and Moses. Aaron was set apart to dedicate the most holy things, that he and his sons forever should make offerings before the Lord, minister to him, and pronounce blessings in his name forever. But the sons of Moses, da 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 da, it goes on. And it's almost as if what the author is saying is this. He says, look, uh, when he says, but the sons of Moses, as if he's saying, look, he, this is about Aaron, blah, 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 blah. You know what? I'll come back to Aaron. Let me talk about Moses for a second. He bangs that out. And now in chapter 24, he comes back and he says, let's talk about Aaron specifically. So it's just sort of an aside when he gives the names of Moses. And here now in chapter 24, 1, he says, these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. Now you can see Aaron had four sons. He has Nadab, he has Abihu, he has Eleazar, and it has Ithamar. We're introduced to those four men and their dad, Aaron, for the first time, those four boys, if you will. We're introduced to them in Exodus chapter 6. And if you read Exodus chapter 6 and the chapters following, what you discover, it seems, it's almost as if, and it doesn't say this, but I assume it, that Nadab and Abihu were sort of like, they were older, and then there was kind of a break, and then he had two more boys that were younger. And because Nadab and Abihu were kind of pulled aside, and they are right there with Moses and Aaron. Uh, they're being groomed, it seems, uh, to be the next priest and high priest of the nation. And then Eleazar and Ithamar, they're kind of like the young guys who just sort of observe things. I don't know if that's the case necessarily, but it sort of seems that way. It's definitely clear that Nadab and Abihu are being groomed to become the next high priest and priest of the nation. And so these men are very privileged men. Not privileged in the sense of they have a lot of money or you know they have these this position or something like that, but they're privileged in the sense that they were given a tremendous opportunity. These were two men that were given the opportunity to sit alongside of their uncle Moses and to sit alongside of their father, the high priest, Aaron. There's a story in Exodus chapter 24 where Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders, out of the four or five million Jews that were living in that day, those 72 men were called to go up on a mountain, and they were told to bring Nadab and Abihu with them. So 74 men go up on that hill. Nadab and Abihu are two of those particular men. Look what Exodus 24.9 says. It's the second of the two verses. It says, when the elders and all them went up, they saw the God of Israel. What a great privilege that these two men were granted. They actually had the privilege to go up with Moses and Aaron and the elders, and it says that they saw the God of Israel. Nadab and Abihu, they were given a tremendous opportunity to learn and to grow. God had placed them under the best leaders he possibly could to prepare them for their future ministry. Their teachers were the leader of the nation and the high priest of the nation. But sadly, if you look to verse 2 of our passage here, they never got the opportunity to become that minister. Look what verse 2 says. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu 
they died before their father and they had no children. And so the two younger brothers, Eleazar and Ithamar, they became the priests. Now, so in First Chronicles, we don't know how they died, why they died. Was it a car accident or something, something tragic or whatever? We don't have that information for us in First Chronicles. But we do have the information for us in the Scripture. And by looking back to Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, and remember the life of Moses and Aaron is pretty much recorded for us in the book of Exodus through the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And there, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 10, we learn what happened to Nadab and Abihu. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they each took a censer, a censer is where you would burn incense, and they put fire in it, and they laid the incense on it, and notice it says they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded of them. And fire came down from heaven before the Lord, and it consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Interesting. The reason why they died before their father is because they offered this unauthorized offering to God. Here are two men. They had every opportunity in the world to be used by the Lord. And yet most of us don't even know their names because they died before that opportunity ever saw fruition. They, they were guys that came from the right background. They were guys that came from the right lineage. They were guys that had the best apprenticeship program that was available in that day, and yet they failed and they were prevented from entering into the ministry that God had designated for them. And why? Because regardless of the specifics, they offered unauthorized fire. Why didn't they? It's because the rules did not apply to them. The rules don't apply to us. They were teaching other people how to come to God and how to offer and how to worship Him the way that God said, but they themselves didn't keep those rules for themselves. Again, look at verse 2. It said, verse 2 of Leviticus, it said they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And God said, no, no, I don't think so. I don't, I don't care who you are. I don't care who your dad is and who your uncle is. It's not going to go this particular way. Look what Moses says. Leviticus 10.3, he says, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. I think this particular passage is a very sobering passage for any one of us that serve the Lord in any way. So your pastor, you serve in the Sunday school, you teach a home fellowship, you run the youth ministry, or even if you simply, you know, all I do is I bear the name of Christ. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ, and I go out into the world as a follower of Christ. This passage is a very sobering reminder for you and I. And that sobering reminder, I would say to you, is, you know, it doesn't matter who you are or what ministry you do, you're never above the rules. And the rules apply to each one of us. And so if as a servant, no matter how effective it seems that you are, if you get to the place where you're no longer sanctifying the Lord in your hearts, and that simply means setting apart the Lord as holy and doing things according to his ways and his inclinations, then the Lord will move on. And the example of Scripture is clear that he'll go on and he'll use somebody else. Now, I didn't bring you here this morning to pop your self-esteem bubble. You know, I hope uh, I don't ruin your day necessarily here. But the reality of things is the Lord does not need any of us. It's not a message we hear very much in America anymore. But the Lord doesn't need any of us. And as servants, we need to be diligent about serving the Lord in such a way that He is sanctified and that our service brings Him glory. And I, I would suggest to you that's what Nadab and Abihu's problem was. When they went to author, offer this unauthorized fire, they were doing it in such a way that people would remember who they were as opposed to who the Lord was. 
Now back to our passage in 1 Chronicles. Verse 2, again, it read, Nadab and Abihu die before their father, and they had no children. And so that, uh, so that means Eleazar and Ithamar are going to have to become the priest. Now if you look at verse 3, it goes on, it says, With the help of Zadok from the sons of Eleazar, and a guy by the name of Ahimelech from the sons of Ithamar, David organizes them according to the appointed duties in their service. So we, now we're moving on from Aaron and Moses and Nadab and Abihu, and we're traveling 500 years into the present day of when this thing here is, uh, well, not even that day was present, but we're moving 500 years forward, and we're talking about two new guys, Zadak and Ahimelech. Moses and Aaron, you may or may not know, they lived roughly around the year 1500 B.C. These guys, Zadok and Ahimelech and David and Solomon, they lived roughly 1000 B.C. So it's a 500-year difference here in, in a comma in our particular book, how quickly they're moving through. Now, Zadok and Abimelech, they were both priests themselves. Zadok is 12 generations, he was the high priest, 12 generations for a descendant of Aaron. And he served as high priest during the, the waning days of David's pres- administration and from in the early days of Solomon's administration. Zadok was the one who actually anointed, we read about it in 1 Kings chapter 1, he anointed Solomon to be the king. That was his responsibility as the high priest. So that's Zadok, a high priest. Now Ahimelech, he was not a high priest. He was a, he was a priest uh, in that day. He also uh, fits into this line. Now his father was a man by the name of Abiathar. And Abiathar was a high priest. And uh, his grandfather is a guy also by the name of Ahimelech. He was a high priest. But this particular Ahimelech, he was not a high priest. Zadok became the high priest. So it didn't necessarily pass through the family line from one son to the next necessarily. As long as they were a son of Aaron, it could fit to them. Regarding Ahimelech, just in case you're interested here, extra credit reading. All right, and if you would write up a quick paper and submit it you know, with your name in the top corner. Uh, we'll give you extra credit. First uh, Samuel chapter 22, it gives you cool insight into who Ahimelech and Abiathar are and what sort of men they were. When King Saul comes to them, he says, I want you to do it this way and this way and this way. And they're like, no, we're going to do it the way God tells us to do it. They said, well, I'll have you killed. He said, well, that's fine. Go ahead and do that if that's what it takes. But we're going to follow God. It's a great story. First Samuel 22, I think it would be an excellent movie. If any of you make movies or whatever, this would be a great movie, suspenseful uh, high drama and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, 1 Samuel 22, that's your extra credit. If you continue in our passage today, look at verse 4. Again, in 1 Chronicles 24, verse 4 says, Now, there were more chief men found among the sons of Eleazar than there were among the sons of Ithamar. And so they organized them kind of a double portion for Eleazar. It says there are 16 heads, and then there were 8 for the sons of Ithamar. All right, so there was more in that particular family line. Notice 16 and 8, the number is 24 that's the number of divisions of these priests, uh, 24 divisions. Essentially, they worked on a lunar calendar. We have 52 weeks in our particular calendar. They worked on a lunar calendar of a 30-day, and it came out to more of like 50 weeks there. Um, two of those weeks were sort of a high week, and so they were sort of like special um, priests brought in. But the general idea was each priest was brought in for a week at a time. Then he sort of went back to his community for six months or so, and then he came back for a second week. So they worked two weeks in the temple uh, specifically here. Uh, and, and that's the 24 heads. 16 from Eleazar and 8 from uh, Ithamar, as it says there. Moving on to verse 5. It reads and it explains how they selected. Because of the sons of Koath and of the sons of Aaron, 
moving down the line, you could have had thousands of men that technically were eligible to, to go on and become the priest. And so how do we decide which of this group of men this, from this particular clan are going to serve this week as the priest here? And look at verse 5. It says, So they divided them by lot, all alike, for there were sacred officers and officers of God among both the sons of Eleazar as well as the sons of Ithamar. So they used the lot. They divided them by lot. They used the lot to choose who was going to get the privilege of serving as the high priest or the priest in the temple at that particular time. Casting the lot. Casting the lot is a lot like what we did when I was a kid, and I, I still see it. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. You know, you, ever, you guys do that? Nobody does that, apparently? Okay, two people. Thank you. Okay, let me try another thing. Uh, Odds evens. You know, ever do that thing, you know? Um, flipping a coin, you know, let's flip a coin, heads I win, tails you lose, you know, something like that. Um, so it's a lot like that. And, and I read that and I think flipping a coin to determine the will of God, that doesn't seem very spiritual. It seems like a strange way to determine the will of God. And yet, in the Old Testament, it was the accepted way of determining God's will in many matters. Now, we're not talking about, Lord, should I rob the bank or not? Let's flip a coin and decide. We're not talking about things that are outside of the known will of God. We're talking about when you are faced with a situation where you can go left or right, and both choices are, if you will, equally acceptable. And so you have two opportunities there that either way could go, and it would be just as great to go one way or the other. And we say, all right, Lord, we're going to leave it to you. But again, it seems to me a strange way to determine the will of God. Certainly unspiritual. Let me give you a couple examples, though. Proverbs 18.18. 18. In Proverbs 18.18, 18, King Solomon declared that the lot puts an end to quarrels and it decides between powerful contenders. These people trusted that God could work through this rolling of the dice process, so to speak. Proverbs 16.33, it said, The lot is cast into the lap, but the Lord determined, but every decision is from the Lord. And so these people fully entrusted themselves that God could determine the outcome of the rolling of some dice. And so casting the lot became an accepted method of determining God's will in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see, I forget, I, didn't, I should have counted, I'm sorry, somewhere either seven or nine, it's one of those two numbers, but seven or eight different examples are given in the New Testament where the people were casting lots. Now, some of those, many of those are in the Gospels, and you have the example, for instance, when they cast lots to determine who would get Jesus' robe and stuff like that. You know, those examples, they, they were sort of unbelievers doing it. But even in the book of Acts, you have the apostles that are casting the lot to determine the will of God. Acts chapter 1, verse 23. The storyline is this. There were 12 apostles. One of those apostles, Judas, betrayed the Lord. And after that, kind of was remorseful for it, and he decided he just couldn't live with himself, and he went out and he killed himself. And so now they're down to 11 apostles. Now, there's nothing necessarily, you know, holy about the number 12 or anything like that, but the apostles did go out in twos, and, you know, they have an even number now, so they need a 12. And so the apostles gathered together, and again, in Acts chapter 1, it says they put forward two men, a guy by the name of Joseph, who had an alias named Bersabas, who also had another alias named Justice. I'm a little sketchy on that fellow there. You know, what you need all these aliases for. But anyway, uh, so you got this guy, Joseph, and then there was the other fellow, Matthias. All right, these two men. And it says, they prayed, and they said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry of the apostleship that Judas, who turned aside to go to his own place, has left open. 
and they cast lots to determine the will. And the passage says, And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So there are examples in the New Testament where of casting of lots. So should we use, as New Testament believers, should we use this method to determine you know, the will? You're, you're trying to make a decision as what college to go to. And so you flip a coin, and you decide, I, I guess I'll go to Ryder instead of TCNJ because the coin came up heads. Right, Katie? Is that how you decided? Very good. Uh, you know, you have two job offers. That would be a good problem, I guess, to have. But you have two job offers there. And you say, all right, Lord, we're going to flip a coin to, to determine your will. Would it, would it be appropriate if, you know, when the elders and I gather once a month, if I ask the guys, make sure you bring a coin full of pockets because we have a lot of decisions to make uh, tonight or something, and that's how we determine the will of the Lord and which direction to move? I, I would certainly hope you would agree with me. I don't think so. I don't think that's the way. And, and the reason why I think it was appropriate in the Old Testament and not necessarily appropriate here in the New Testament is because there's a d big distinction between Old Testament believers and New Testament believers. And the big distinction came on a particular day. And I would say to you, I would suggest to you, that the difference is the day of Pentecost. Because on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was not just with believers, and the Holy Spirit didn't just come upon believers like you see in the Old Testament, but what is distinct and different about the New Testament believers' relationship with God is the scripture says that the Holy Spirit came into believers. And that since the Holy Spirit came into believers, the Holy Spirit now can direct, and the Holy Spirit can guide, and the Holy Spirit can lead. You remember Acts chapter 1, when Jesus had risen from the dead, and he had gathered with his disciples there in that upper room. Scripture says they, the doors were locked, they were hiding from the authorities and all this. And Jesus entered into the room through the wall, it seems, uh, and it says, Now while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit came in, entered into their lives, and he now leads us and directs us and guides us. I'm sure Matthias, back to that guy, I'm sure he was a great guy, great follower of Christ and all this sort of stuff. That's probably why his name was mentioned. But I have a feeling that when, when the apostles came to the Father, so to speak, and they said, all right, God, you have two choices, either Matthias or this guy Joseph here, pick one of those. I wonder if God kind of said, well, how do I pick neither of those? Because i got somebody else in mind. And if you read through the rest of the book of Acts, you never read again about Matthias. And again, he's probably a great guy. But it becomes pretty clear who God picked as you read through the rest of the book of Acts, doesn't it? It's the apostle Paul, who wasn't even a believer at that particular time. He was a rabbi at that time trying to kill Christians. And yet God said, I got somebody, but he's not ready yet. And so, you know, we'll just keep the, the position, if you will, vacant. But anyway, it's an example in the New Testament of the casting of lots. I'd encourage you, develop your relationship with the Spirit. As you do that, and you'll get a greater sense each day of how he is leading and how he is guiding you. Can we ever do anything like casting lots anymore? I, I think we can kind of say, you know what, Lord, both of these are okay. Neither of them are sin. Neither are them outside of your will. I don't know which way to go. I've done all those things that you kind of exemplify in your scripture. I've gone to other people seeking wisdom. I've prayed about it, but I just don't know. So, Lord, I'm just going to pray that you would keep opening those doors and showing me kind of the direction you're going. And so, you know, then in the mail, a letter comes. We're still hoping you're considering our school. We'd love to have you. And you're like, whoa, 
could that be the word? Or whatever. And so you're in this process of trying to determine the will of God. But again, it's a matter of trusting in and relying on the leading and teaching of the Holy Spirit. Well, anyway, Zadok and Ahimelech, back in our passage in 1 Chronicles 24, they use the lot. That's how they're going to determine who the priests are going to be for the various duties. And if you look at verse 6, it tells us that the reason we know who was determined by the lot then is because there was a scribe by the name of Shemaiah. And it said that he was diligent about recording the names of all of these people. And so we have that for ourselves today. And then as we move on to verse 7, we have the record of who the lot fell upon. And starting in verse 7, it says, The first lot fell to Jehorab, the second to Jediah, the third to Harim, and the fourth to Seorim. And then it continues on and on and on from there uh, for the next, uh, I don't know, 20 or so verses here. Now, in this section, there are 24 different names that are chosen. And as I said earlier, each of them would have been assigned two weeks, one week now, one week so to speak, in the spring and one week in the fall, a little bit later in the year, where they would go to serve. Here's something I find interesting. Look at verse 10. We're not going to read all of their names, but I do like this one, because in verse 10 it says, Now the seventh of these priests was a man by the name of Hakaz, and the eighth went to Abijah. I find that interesting. Now you're probably thinking, you know, Greg, you and I define interesting very, very differently, um, but I think you have to wait for it here, because the reason why, especially during this time of year, chances are, in your daily devotions or whatever, you've been thinking about Christmas a little bit, and you said to yourself, you know, I want to kind of go back and read the Christmas story a little bit in the Scriptures. And so you turn to the book of Luke, and you're looking at that, and you begin, you know, in chapter 1. The Christmas story is basically Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2. And so you're reading Luke chapter 1 there, and you've read these words. This is in Luke 1, 5. It says, Now in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. It goes on, it says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Verse 11, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now you know the story, that's where Zechariah, it's revealed to him that his wife Elizabeth, who's 65 years old, never had a baby, he's barren, is pregnant and going to have a baby. And that baby will go on to be the fellow that we know to be John the Baptist. Now, you're probably familiar with the story. I don't bring up the story necessarily to draw your attention to the miraculous conception and birth of John the Baptist, but I do bring it up for the three things. Is it highlighted up there yet? These things are highlighted up there. Look in verse 5. Notice it says, of the division of Abijah. Chances are you probably read through that and didn't pay much attention to it. But I want to show you that in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 10, it explains that this was the eighth division of the priest, the division of Abijah. Here we are a thousand years later, and they're still following these things that we have here in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. If you look at verses uh, 8 and following, it talks about that when his division came on duty. We read about that in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, that they had this one week, uh, two times a year division being on duty. Also, if you go down to verse 11, uh, or a little bit further down, it talks about, as was the custom, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple. We read about that in First Chronicles chapter 20. And I don't know about you, I think that's really cool, because what it shows me is that all of this book unlocks the rest of this book, so to speak. 
Somebody has once said, the greatest commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And, you know, you just pour yourself into it. And I read commentaries and stuff like that to kind of give me direction and understanding of things I'm not familiar with, particularly cultural type of things. But when you can use the Word of God to interpret the Word of God, you begin to understand the Word of God. And so I love the fact that here we are in Luke chapter 1, and these things that are just thrown in there, that you're like, I don't know what that means, whatever, just keep reading. You know, don't slow down, keep reading so you can get out of your devotional time and go do what you got to do. I like the fact that the Scripture unlocks itself and it explains it. So I think it's cool. Maybe you're not with me. Okay, I'm not getting any excitement from you guys. All right. But the Bible makes sense. And if we dig into it, we do our homework a little bit here, all the pieces of the puzzle just fit together. And it's just, it's just really cool. And for me, it just confirms the Word. It makes the foundation on which I try to build my walk with Christ just a little bit firmer uh, and, and makes me a little more confident in who it is we follow and serve. Well, skip down in First Chronicles to verse 20. Because starting in verse 20, we have moved from the priest and we have moved to the Levites. Okay? Now... It says, now the rest of the sons of Levi, of the sons of Amron, Shubael, of the sons of Shubael, Jehadiah. The rest of the sons of Levi. So we are referring to Levites that would minister in and around the temple. I shared earlier, these would sort of be like, almost like custodians. They're the guys that make sure the building is in the place that it needs to be, doing the things that need to be done, so that the people can come in and out and operate in this particular building. So these guys here, these Levites. And it begins, and it speaks of this guy, Amron. Now remember... All priests are Kohathites, but not all Kohathites are priests. Kohath had four sons, and those four sons, one of them is a guy by the name of Amram. But Amram would not be in the priestly line. Okay? So he has four sons. They are Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzziel. And they served at the temple, but not as priests. Verse 31, look at that. It records that these priests were chosen by Lot, just like the priests uh, that served in the temple were, these Levites, I should say, were chosen by Lot, and they were appointed to the service of the temple. I'll read it to you, verse 31. These also, the head of each other's house, and younger brother alike, they cast lots, just as their brothers the son of Aaron did. And who are the brothers the son of Aaron? Checking for understanding. That's the priest, right? Aaron's line, the priest come from. We just read them 10 minutes ago. Do I have to start over and go back to the beginning here? All right, so just like the brothers, the sons of Aaron, you can, if you wanted to, put in parentheses next to it, the priest. Uh, in the presence of King David, Zadok, and Ahimelech, and the heads of the father's houses of the priests and of the Levites. So they use the lot as well. Now, one of the things I find very interesting about how these Levites are chosen, notice what it says in the first line of verse 31. It says, the head of each father's house and the younger brothers alike. So this wasn't a situation, you know, when you got to a certain age, then you could kind of be in here. If you hit that window of opportunity, whether it be, remember David moved it from 20 to 50? If you were in that, it didn't matter if you were 49 or if you were 21, you know, right at the beginning or right at the end, so to speak, of this, all of the names were thrown into a hat. And pulled out of that hat were the people that were chosen to serve as the custodians, if you will, for that particular week. I find that interesting. And I think what it would do is it would produce a very... Uh, great healthy balance between the wisdom and experience that comes with age, but also the enthusiasm and energy that is oftentimes found in youth. And I'm getting a little bit older now. I'm 41 now or whatever, and used to have a lot of energy or whatever and very little wisdom. And now I have kind of some wisdom and waning energy. You know, it's kind of fading away here. And I appreciate how the two things are just sort of being 
morphed and come together. And I think that's the way that God builds and works in a body of believers. He uses those that are a little older and wiser, and he uses those that are young and have enthusiasm and energy, and he brings them all together to sort of fulfill his purposes. See an example of that here. Now, verses 20 to 31, it names the clan leaders that were chosen for these tasks. You can read their names there uh, if you're so moved here. And that brings us to the end of chapter 24. And now as we move on to chapter 25, the purpose of 25 is for the worship leaders. This is how David, remember David mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, in chapter 23, verse 5, he said that there were going to be 4,000 that would offer praises to the Lord with the instruments that David had made for praise. So 4,000 worship leaders. Obviously, that would be chaos to put all 4,000 of those people on duty at the same time. And so these guys, they're divided up according to the divisions as well. There's going to be 24 divisions of them that we'll read about in this particular chapter here, each getting a, getting a week at a time for two weeks over the year. And if you look at verse 1, it says, Now David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun. And they prophesied with their lyres, with their harps, and with their symbols. So Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun. It's according to their family lines. Now, we've read about Asaph and Heman previously. In First Chronicles chapter 15, we were introduced to these men and we were told that they were worship leaders uh, in their day. Not much other than that is given at that point in time, but they are at least were introduced to their names. Interesting, though, in First Chronicles 15, we're also told that there was a third guy with them, a guy by the name of Ethan. So in 1 Chronicles 15, it says there was Asaph, there was Heman, Heman, and there was a guy by the name of Ethan. Here, however, we're told it's Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun. Now, it's interesting. It's either a contradiction uh, or something else is going on here. And there are two possible explanations that uh, most scholars pretty much go with. Nobody's really certain necessarily what it is. One of those is that here from chapter 15 of 1 Chronicles to chapter 25 of 1 Chronicles, you have a situation where Ethan has passed away. And so Ethan is replaced. Asaph's still there. He-Man is still there. But they've replaced him with a new fellow, this guy by the name of Jeduthun. That's one possibility, certainly. The other is that Ethan and Jeduthun are alternative names for the same person. And we do see a number of examples of that in the book of 1 Chronicles or if it's listed as one name in First Chronicles, it's listed as a different name over in First uh, Samuel, Second Samuel, and so on. But it's clear it's the same person that you're speaking of. So the other alternative is that, opportunity I should say, is that it's alternative names for the same guy. That's kind of interesting because the proper, I don't know how proper because I'm just kind of faking it, but uh, pronunciation of Jeduthun would be Yeduthun, and for Ethan it would be Yethun. And so they sound pretty similar, and so maybe that's the situation that is going on here. We don't necessarily know, but either way, at this time in chapter 25, these three men are chosen to be the worship leaders. And they're chosen to be the worship leaders, not just because, as I said before, that they're good with instruments. They can play the guitar well, the drums well, or something like that. In their case, the lyres, the harps, and the cymbals. But they're chosen because they themselves were worshipers. If you read the book of Psalms, one of the things that you'll do, and, and if you have your own Bible, chances are you have um, titles over every chapter. And they're usually em emboldened or something. They stand out from the writing of the chapters itself. Well, those titles aren't in the original. They were added by whoever it is that published your Bible so that you could you know, have an idea of what it is you were reading about and you could find certain passages and things like that. 
It's different, however, with the book of Psalms. If you just flip to any psalm right now, what you would probably see, not all of them do it, but most of them do it, is that they have a title that is emboldened. That was added by the publisher of your Bible. But then they have what I believe is called a superscription. And that is sort of this little intro to the psalm. The writing is usually smaller than the rest of the verses in that particular thing. And it'll say something like, a psalm of David when he ran from Saul into the wilderness. Or uh, a psalm according to such and such that should be sung according to the mascal of the priest or something. It'll, it'll give a little explanation of what that psalm is. That's actual Bible. You probably read through that, don't pay attention to it. So if you've done the whole Bible in a year and you skip those superscriptions, you didn't do the whole Bible in a year. So you've got to go back and do it again, which is probably a good idea anyway. Alrighty? But they're there in the original. And if you look in your Bibles, Psalm 50 as well as Psalm 73 through 83. So it turns out to be 12 Psalms. The title of those Psalms say that they were written by Asaph. He was a worshiper. If you look at Psalm 88, Psalm 88 says that the, the author of that particular Psalm was Heman. He was a worshiper. And if you look at Psalm 89, it says that the author was Ethan, or perhaps Jeduthun. Uh, he was a worshiper. So for extra credit over the Christmas break, what I would like you to do, please, is read. You, you woke up over there. You're like, yes, what's my homework? I'm ready. Uh, I'd like you to read through those Psalms so that you get an insight into the heart of these three men, these worship leaders of the nation of Israel. Now notice also verse 1, as worshipers, it said that these men prophesied, that they used the lyre, the harp, and the cymbals. We have a picture of what a lyre, a harp, and a cymbal looks like. The lyre and the harp are very similar. They're almost, they both sort of look like what we're familiar with today as, as a harp. Um, they're stringed instruments. Likely they gave off a different sound and they complemented one another. Um, and then also the cymbals. We know what cymbals look like. We have drums and stuff today where these cymbals are. And these guys use these instruments to lead the people into worship. I think more significantly, though, besides the instruments that they play, though that's, that's neat, but I think more significantly, the verse says that they prophesied. Now, we have examples in the Scripture, two different, really, categories of prophecy in the Scripture. One type of prophecy in the Scripture is the one I think we think of more often when we think of the Old Testament. And this is a prophecy that foretells the future. This time tomorrow, you know, the world will come to an end sort of thing. You know, that's a prophecy of the future. It's predicting what's going to happen in the future. We have a lot of examples of that. We have some, in the Old Testament, we have some in the New as well of that kind of a prophecy. The second type of prophecy, though, is not a foretelling of the future, but if you will, it's more a forth-telling. And this is when a person will come and they'll say, look, you need to know this. God says this, and if you don't respond accordingly, this is going to happen to you. It's a bold proclamation of what the Word of God says and the consequences uh, for our lives uh, that that Word has. That's a forth telling of God's word. So there's two types. In the Old Testament, I think we see more foretelling, but we certainly see a lot of examples of forth. And then in the New Testament, I think we, we see much more forth telling, and, but yet we still see some examples of foretelling. So the ministry of these worship leaders, it was either to present direct messages from God for the people in the manner of the classical prophets. We have an example of that. This is 2 Chronicles chapter 20. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, a fellow by the name of Jahaziel, notice it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jahaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, son of Madaniah, 
who was a Levite of the sons of Asaph. You see the context? We've been talking about the people of Asaph. And in the midst of the assembly, this fellow, he stood up and he said, Listen, all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at the great horde that has come against you, for the battle is not yours, but it is God's. And tomorrow you will go down against them. They will come up by the ascent of Ziz. And it goes on and says, And you're going to have a victory over them. That's a guy of these people of Asaph, a worship leader, that comes and foretells the future. But it's also possible that the ministry of these particular uh, worship leaders was to boldly proclaim the word of God in song. Not fearful, not sort of wishy-washy. We live in a wishy-washy society, don't we? Well, you know, I don't, don't want to offend you. I don't want to make any statements about what is truth or anything here because I understand that you think differently than I think. Kind of thing. We're afraid to just speak truth on things. No, no, that is wrong. I'm sorry, that's wrong. Right? And if that offends you, I apologize. But wrong is wrong. Right is right. And so here you have an example, or I'm, I would say to you, the other example of these guys is sort of a bold proclamation of the Word of God. I think that these guys, it was probably a combination of both. Regardless of what it was or if it was both of them, their ministry as worship leaders required that they were dependent upon God's Holy Spirit. And if they weren't dependent on God's Holy Spirit, then they couldn't do their ministry. They wouldn't be able to boldly proclaim the word, and they certainly couldn't foretell the future here. This wasn't just these worship leaders. It wasn't just a bunch of guys playing you know, a whole bunch of neat songs as people's mind kind of wandered onto other things. These were people that were inspired and uh, led by the Spirit of God to lead people into worship of God. They weren't just good musicians, but they were men that were gifted of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was uh, exercising through them. What I find interesting about the context of things here, it, it's in a chapter that's all about order. You know, and so you've got this many people, and this many are going to be able to do this, and you've got 24 of these, and every week it's going to change, and a new group of people are going to come in, and we'll cast them. And there's this whole sense of order that is taking place here. So you have men that are skilled, and there's this system of organization that is taking place. But at the same time, it's all dependent on being led by the Spirit of God. Interesting, because that's exactly what needs to be in our life as well, lives as well. You know, there, there's sort of two sides of the Christian worship spectrum. There's one side over here that is maybe a little dry, a little stuffy. And you sort of come in and, and you're kind of like, okay, you know, when's this going to be done? I can't wait for it to be over. And you're not really getting anything out of it necessarily. And then there's a side over here that is sort of like, woohoo, active and jumping around. And everybody's having a great time. And it's like jazzercise class or something. But there's no sense of order in all of that as well. And, you know, what, what songs did you say? I don't even know, but it was awesome, you know, kind of thing. Well, what were you proclaiming in the words that you were singing? Who cares? I had a good feeling kind of thing. And, and that's kind of on this side here. Well, I don't think God wants us to be in this place. The, the term for it, uh, if it goes overboard, might be something we might call charismania. And, and I don't think he necessarily wants us to be on this side where it's so dry that you don't even feel like you've come into the presence of God. I think there has to be sort of this healthy balance of the two. It's anchored in truth and sort of that orderly system here, but it's filled with a sense of life that the Spirit brings into that circumstance. There's a great book that you might want to read, more extra credit for you that you might want to read. It's called Charisma versus Charismania that comes from, that uh, Chuck Smith wrote. And I think it does a really good job 
of speaking into this, of sort of the balance of life and order in our worship, both as individuals and as a congregation. I think great worshipers know that we come into the presence of God with our whole being, that we're prepared to give Him thanks and we're prepared to give Him praise, and that there is an anointing that comes into that time. And that just simply means there's a sense of, Lord, I've met with you. I've come before you. And, and so to speak, I've looked into your face as we've met here. There's anointing of God that comes from seeking Him in truth, but with a sincere pursuit of loving Him with our whole heart. In John chapter 4, it says, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. It doesn't have to be one or the other, but it's a blending of the two. And certainly that is what we're seeking uh, to do here on a Sunday morning as we gather, and certainly what we do on our own as we meet with the Lord in our own quiet times. There's an order, but there's also life in the midst of that order. Well, as we come together next week, we'll learn specifically what the gatekeepers had to do and what the sort of the civil servants that I mentioned to you have to do. But really, what chapter 24, 25, 26, and 27 are doing, they're taking that one verse from chapter 23 that says David divided uh, all those people that were working according to the priests, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the custodians. We'll use that term there. And it's explaining it. Let's go before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a people, certainly, Lord, that worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, we want there to be life in our relationship with you. Not just dry doctrine necessarily, as important as doctrine is, but Lord, that that doctrine brings us into access with you and into that relationship with you. But not just relationship devoid of, of teaching and an anchor of truth, Lord, but that is all blended so remarkably and perfectly. And so Father, as a church, I pray that that would be the case and as individuals, Seeking you for ourselves, Lord, I pray would be the case. And Father, as men and women and young people that know you, Lord, we take to heart the story here of Nadab and Abihu. Lord, two men given every opportunity to be raised up in you. Sent off to the best school, so to speak, where they could sit with Moses and Aaron 70 elders and they could have explained to them the deeper things of the Lord had the privilege of the family line of the lineage Lord you had a great calling and a desire for their lives and yet they never entered in that which they taught others they didn't teach themselves the rules didn't apply to them. They went astray. They sought to steal the glory for themselves. And Lord, we know from your word you, would, you will share no glory. Well, that is a, it's a sobering thought for those of us that are seeking to serve you. So we thank you for the reminder from your word. Father, we know that some get burned uh, by touching the hot stove and others learn the lesson uh, for themselves. And Father, we want to be those, uh, those people that can, can learn from somebody else getting burned and not have to get burned ourselves. And so Father, we ask that you would uh, you'd really nail down in the deepest places of our hearts 
the lesson here of Nadab and Abihu. And that, Lord, you would be glorified in all things. Father, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. And so, Lord, we lift up the name and the person of Jesus that you would be glorified, we ask.